So if you recall, in the first sermon in this series in the book of Exodus, which I didn't get to preach because I had COVID, so I preached it to you in three minutes at the start of the second sermon. Do you remember that sermon? We said that the book of Exodus in many ways is about God versus Pharaoh. This is kind of the, the scene that's set there. They often we'll read a book like that and say, who's the hero of Exodus? Moses. Well, that's not true. God is the hero of Exodus. And Pharaoh, in lots of ways, is representative of evil. He's unnamed, right? And therefore, representing evil in that kind of narrative way. And so, these two kingdoms are going to clash. That's what Exodus is about. And which kingdom will be victorious? And which kingdom has the power? And which kingdom has dominion over man? And so we have God in the opening chapters of Exodus. We have all these creation Genesis 1 and 2 elements where the people are fruitful and they're multiplying and, and good things are, are happening in their midst even though they're, they're living in this way. And Pharaoh is trying to oppose that. Remember, he's trying to, to kill the, the children. He's trying to stop babies from being born. He's trying to stop them from multiplying, eventually enslaving them to keep them apart. And so you have, in essence... Uh, God in the creation narrative employing His people to care for His kingdom and Pharaoh in the opening chapters of Exodus enslaving the people in order to work for Him. These kingdoms that are diametrically opposed. And we've tried to say that, that those kingdoms in conflict, are, it's not just an Exodus story, right? It's a history story. We live in that reality now. Evil, good and evil in conflict. The kingdom of God coming in conflict with the kingdom of, uh, of the devil, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of our flesh. Well, I review that to say because this morning we're going to start to see the battle beginning to erupt, right? We saw the beginning pieces of it, the behind the scenes part of it, but now Pharaoh's about to be confronted with the truth of God and we're going to see how he reacts. So, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to the very end of Exodus chapter 4. Here's our task this morning. We're going to go from Exodus chapter 4, verse 29, all the way to the end of chapter 6. You ready for this? <laughs> That's a true story. <clears throat> We're going to do it by skipping around just a little bit. So uh, it doesn't mean the other parts aren't important, but we just don't have time to read the full narrative and address the whole thing. So feel free in, in the rest of this week to kind of soak yourself in this storyline. So 429, here we go. <clears throat> Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. You remember as we left it last week, God spoke to Moses, the burning bush. God reassured Moses in a bunch of different ways. It gave him signs. Now Moses is here to speak to the Israelites that God's going to rescue them. Uh, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. This is going good. And when they heard the Lord was concerned about them, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. Really significant. Chapter 5. After Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, afterwards Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said, Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. So part one goes good. The Israelites listen. How's this going to go? Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or He may strike us with plagues 
or with the sword. If you're wondering about Moses' language here, it certainly is somewhat confused, right? Uh, he's not being awfully specific. Let's go, we're going to go have a festival. Well, there's a little more to it than that, right? And he may strike us with plagues or a sword. Well, he's trying to be deferential in some ways to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh will let them go. And in some ways, remember, Moses' struggle is he's not trusting the yod of God. He's trusting the yod of Moses. So Moses is changing the narrative because Pharaoh would probably maybe agree to this even though he wouldn't agree to something else. So anyway. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Ever heard someone tell you that? Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from their work. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and get it themselves but require them to keep making the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. We're going to skip down to verse 19. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you've sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people, on these people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, right? He's clarifying with Moses again. He will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Skip down to verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty axe of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'll give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. The Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. So, to summarize, Moses goes, tells the Israelites, they receive it. They're excited. Moses goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, not a chance. In fact, makes it harder for the people. This, of course, changes the people's opinion about the message from Moses to them. He says, what are you doing? We don't like this at all. And then, of course, Moses is discouraged. Why? Because Moses is still struggling to believe that this is a God thing, not a Moses thing. 
and he looks like a failure. God then has to reemphasize with about a million eyes, I'm going to do this, not you. And when I do it, my people will know me. There's so much significance going on in here. And it's really hard to kind of wrap this up in a palatable way for us to sort of take in in the next 25 to 30 minutes. So what I want to do is try to encapsulate the, the narrative by asking the question, why did Pharaoh say no? But in so doing, there's going to be a little tangent, so I just need you to know that in order to make sense of this. So here we go. Three things, uh, Pharaoh, three reasons that we get in the text that Pharaoh says no. The first is, uh, pretty explicitly in the initial, that God says, <clears throat> or excuse me, Pharaoh says, I don't know God, right? The first reason that Pharaoh says no is he doesn't know the Lord. Pharaoh says, I, I don't even know him, so how am I going to obey him? That word obey is the Hebrew word shema, right? Remember Deuteronomy chapter 5? Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That word is a, like a, a combination of hearing and obeying, right? It's a hearing that moves you to action. Pharaoh's like, I don't even know this guy. How am I going to do what he says? It doesn't even make sense. Now, probably on some level, Pharaoh has heard about the God of the Hebrews after all these people have been prospering in his land for a long time. And though we're told that uh, the Pharaoh before him, and then likely him, did not know of Joseph, they probably knew the stories of Joseph, they just didn't know him in a close way. And that actually helps us understand what's happening here. The Hebrew word for know is the word yada, right? Yada. And it does not mean to know in existence or even to know facts about. It means to know relationally. Does this make sense? And so what Pharaoh is saying here is, I'm not in relationship with this God. I'm not going to do what he says. What do I know? I don't know anything about him. Now, this is not just like relational in the sense that you're having conversations with, like prayer and the kind of things we think about. But it's also like kind of knowing the ways, knowing the character knowing the mission, knowing the aims, knowing the intentions of God. We've talked about that, especially in our series of the book in James last year, that when you cultivate a relationship with God, part of knowing God is you begin to understand the character of God, and you begin to understand almost intuitively the ways in which God often moves. And Pharaoh has no knowledge of this. He has no yada of God, and therefore he's not going to do it. I promise you tangents. Here's tangent number one. The Bible is replete with examples that obedience is dependent upon knowing. We get this wrong in our Christian faith an awful lot, don't we? We think we obey so we can know. (laughs) And that's actually backwards. We know God and therefore we obey Him. How can I be certain of this? Well, Jesus himself says it, right? Remember he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, right? He doesn't say, obey my commandments so that you can love me. And often, religion teaches us, do, 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 so that you can have a relationship with God. It's actually the opposite. And it's actually a dry and barren journey when you live that way. If you're struggling with obedience in your life, you don't have an obedience issue. You have a yada issue. (laughs) 
You don't have a behavior issue. You have a knowing issue. See, Pharaoh, it's not just true that Pharaoh doesn't know God. Pharaoh does know someone. <laughs> he knows himself. Right? He knows his power. He knows his position. He knows his prestige. And he sees himself in many ways in divine stature and all-powerful. The most powerful in all the day. And who's this Hebrew God? After all, he can't be very pungent because his people have been here for 400 years under my thumb. Now, we might not speak like that overtly, but we often live that way, don't we? How true. First reason Pharaoh says no to Moses, pretty obvious. They don't know, he does not know God. Now, isn't it fascinating that when Moses first comes to the people, and he gives them the signs, and they're very excited about this rescue mission, right? They believe and they're excited. Then Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says no. The work gets harder, and the people's opinion changes. Do you remember? They're like, you've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh now, and this is the worst for us. And it was hard for them. What is God's response to that? I'm going to rescue you, and when I do, did you catch the language? You'll know me. See that? See, part of the issue for the Israelites is that they also don't know God. They've heard the stories and maybe heard the generational stories and maybe have some kind of rites that they're practicing in Egypt. We don't exactly know how the faith is prolonging there. But it's quite clear that this knowledge of Yahweh is lacking. And in the same way, though Moses is beginning to know God, He's struggling to know God, isn't he? And Moses is, or God is continually reminding him, not by your power, Moses, but mine. A simple question for you this morning. Who and what do you know? What are you trusting? Where are you at? There's a second reason that Pharaoh says no to this request of Moses, ultimately a request of God. And this is because it's the people of God are useful to Pharaoh. This is a very practical answer, right? God, or Moses says, hey, let my people go. Now, how long can this possible conversation be happening? And ultimately, Pharaoh's like, hey, listen, even this conversation, let alone this three-day journey you want to take, it's stopping the people from working. You're keeping them from being useful to me. Now, at one level, you could say Pharaoh doesn't value the people. And it, you could define that and be right. But the truth is, actually, Pharaoh does value the people. He values them in all the wrong ways. You see it? For their usefulness to him. He's interested in forcing production and performance from them for his good. And central to that reality is this word that Pharaoh keeps using. Another Hebrew word I'm going to teach you. You ready for this? The Hebrew word for work, because it's central to Pharaoh's language, is abad. Can you say that? Abad. There you go. Pharaoh says, you're keeping them from abad. And after all, that's why they're useful. That's who they are. Don't you see what Pharaoh's trying to do is force an identity on these people. This is why they're useful. This is what they're good for. You're trying to get them to go do a festival over there, but this is who they are. The world is always trying to force an identity on us. And it is always about performance and production. 
And we find ourselves regularly enslaved in that reality. Pharaoh says no because he's forcing an identity on them. What's fascinating to me is that God also uses Abad as his reason for trying to set the people free. Did you know that? God says the whole reason I'm trying to do this is Abad. Now, you might not have caught it, but let's go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 and see if you can find it. God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will Abad, God, on this mountain. Now, how fascinating. The Hebrew word Abad doesn't just mean work. It also means worship. This is significant. And the connector between the two of them is this idea of service. What or who are you serving? What or who are you in submission to? But it's not just about serving, it's about value. The abad of work is the value of production and performance. The abad of worship is the value that is inherent to us and why we are created our exact purpose. See, Pharaoh is saying they're good because they're useful for what they can perform. And God says, no, they're good because they've been created to worship me. You see this? That's central to the whole reason God is attempting this exodus and will be successful, we know, is that God is trying to free them from the would-be identity makers of them so that they can be recentered on who they actually are. Worshippers. This is the value of humanity. This is the significance of people. All too often in our world, we are viewed through the lens of a bod equaling work. God calls us to be viewed through the lens of Abad equaling worship. Even in our most cherished relationships, there's some level in that relationship of sustenance because of your usefulness to someone else. You know that? Like even in your marriage or your best friend or whatever, even as pure as some of those relationships are, in our flesh and our brokenness, the brokenness of the world, part of the sustenance of that relationship actually is your usefulness to the other person. Test it out sometime. Don't do this. Test it out sometime, proverbially. Stop being useful to that person and see how frustrated they begin to get with you. (laughs) God doesn't view us that way. This is incredibly liberating if we come to understand it. Now, we need to think about something This might seem semantical to you, but it's actually super important. I'm not suggesting to you that God uh, envisions a world absent of work. (laughs) Right? Oh, I want to be a follower of God now, because all i got to do is go worship on the mountain, right? Whatever that means. Hmm. Remember that God's working the creation story, and central to the creation story is work. But here's the difference. Work comes out of worship. It does not move to worship. Right? In Pharaoh's economy, we work in order to worship him. In God's economy, we worship, and out of that identity, we work as agents of his kingdom. So work is deeply biblical and centrally human. God's not calling us away from it. 
He's calling us to find our identity and our worship of Him. Third reason that Pharaoh says no is that he lacks a concern for the people. Another phrase that keeps showing up in these chapters and the one before is this phrase, crying out or cries out. Do you remember that God says, I'm coming for my people. Why? Because I've heard their cries. Now, in this chapter we just read, Pharaoh hears the cries of the people too. And what does he do? Calls them lazy. (laughs) A little bit different, isn't it? God hears the cries of the people and he intends to rescue them. Pharaoh hears the cries of the people and he calls them lazy. In fact, he exerts more dominion and control over them. See, it's significant that we stop and think about these reasons that Pharaoh says no, because what's actually happening in these chapters is the author is attempting to give us a side-by-side comparison of Pharaoh and God. Who they are, expose them at the core. Because one of the ultimate questions of the book of Exodus is, who do you want to serve? We know this is an ongoing question, because throughout the book, the Israelites are going to keep going, well, let's go back to Egypt then. Do you remember? I don't want to, you know, steal the sermons that are going to come later, but we also went through the book of Numbers where they kept saying that stuff too. you remember? And so the author is wanting to remind, like, this is the central question. And here's the truth, friends. Many of you who are here this morning or who are going to watch this later on or right now have already decided you're, you're all in for Jesus. You're going to follow him, right? You want to be with him. And I praise God for that. The question doesn't go away. Who are you going to serve? Right? It's an everyday question. It's an every moment question. It's a continual battle. And so the writer, the author, wants us as readers and wants the the Israelite people who will read this later on to see these side by side. This is who Pharaoh is. Is that who you want to serve? Exerting dominion over you, valuing you for your for your performance and your production, lacking care over you, or or is it God, who's moved by your cries, who seeks to rescue you, who seeks to to restore you to your uh, created purpose of worship that leads you to be His agents in this world? Who who do you want to serve? And of course. If you're not quite at that question yet, maybe a, a more surface-level question is, what's your experience in life right now? Enslavement <laughs> or freedom? And central to those realities underneath them is, who are you serving? Does this make sense? These are the questions that the author of Exodus is trying to, to expose in this narrative. And in God... You have a God, a creator of the whole universe who could and in many ways should be Pharaoh-like in terms of demanding and ungracious and whatever, and yet it's just actually the opposite. His character is fully exposed for us. A character of mercy and of grace. A heart bent towards His people that wants to see them set free because He loves them and wants to renew them. This is who... God is. And this is why God says, even to the Israelites who are ready to throw this whole rescue plan in the trash, and even to Moses who's feeling sorry for himself after a perceived failure on round number one, he says, I'm not done. I'm going to keep going. 
My love for you is deeper than your belief in me. That's a gospel statement right there. God's love for you is always deeper and more profound than your belief in him in this side of heaven. And so God says to Moses, so get back up on your horse and march yourself back into Pharaoh's palace. You're going to talk to him again, and things are going to be slightly different. Many of you are familiar with the Exodus story, and so I have no problem spoiling the ending for you. Pharaoh will relent. The people will be set free. God will show his power. God is far greater than Pharaoh or any would-be Pharaoh in our world. But even the Exodus story that we're reading is a forerunner. It's pointing to something even greater. Because the Bible, if you're reading it intuitively, if you're understanding what's happening, is always pointing to the reality that there's a greater enemy than even Pharaoh. In the New Testament, Pharaoh becomes Rome. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's not there to eradicate Rome from first century Israel. He's there to fight the ultimate battle, to lead the ultimate exodus. He's there to fight sin and death itself. It's in Jesus that we have the fulfillment of this exodus story, a once and for all exodus for us. Because the Bible says that we are enslaved. Slave to sin, the Apostle Paul says. And that of our own power, of our own yod, we have no hope of rescuing ourselves. But God has heard our cries and has come for us and has set us free in Jesus. What's fascinating to me about Jesus is that he constantly is telling his people that he is the embodiment of God. He says, listen, things like this. He says, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or maybe even more famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Translate into Exodus language. How are you going to yada God? Only through Jesus. You see this? And that's why Jesus, at his inaugural uh, sermon in a synagogue in Nazareth, got him in a whole lot of trouble, decided to preach on a passage out of Isaiah chapter 60 to explain exactly what he'd come to do. Listen to this language, Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, right? So in the synagogues that these things were written on scrolls, they didn't have our nice neat Bibles. This is Jesus has just read the scripture. He's ready to give his sermon now. He rolls it up and he says, Oh, we didn't go there. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'll read this for you. Yeah, go ahead, back check. He rolled the scroll, gives it back to the tent, they sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on them. Synagogues were an interesting setting, right? They didn't do like this. They didn't put the person, like they were kind of set all the way around and they'd sit down and kind of discuss things together. 
So here's a sermon, great sermon, one sentence. You're like, Pastor Adam, one sentence sermons, please. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) Sermon done. In other words, what? I've come to set the captives free. You want to understand what the gospel is? It's the new exodus. It's the grand exodus. Now you understand why I can't preach one-sentence sermons because I I don't fulfill any of this stuff, right? So you get it. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is who he is. And he accomplishes it on the cross and ultimately in his resurrection where the chains of sin and death are broken off of our arms and legs. That anyone who is in Christ, the New Testament writer says, is what? New creation. Creation language. Restored to who we are. No longer forced an identity on them, but reminded and and restored to who we are. Listen, it would be remiss if I didn't pause and say, if you've not come to a point in your life where you've said, ah, I'm enslaved. You've not come to a point in your life where you've embraced this ultimate exodus in Jesus. There's no greater opportunity than now to say, you know what? This is true. And as soon as you align yourself with Jesus, the truths of the gospel are true of you. Now many of you who are here this morning have said, I've already done that. So then what does a passage of Scripture like Exodus 5 and 6 mean for me? If this has all kind of been done for me already, how how do I make sense of this? Well, let me turn to Galatians to give us some understanding. Here's what Paul says. Writing to a group of people who have already believed the Gospel. He says, listen, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Why preach this sermon this morning? Because even though we've been set free by Christ, we have this crazy habit of finding ourselves regularly enslaved, even though we ought not be. Paul says... And I reiterate to all of us this morning. The Gospel says you are free. So why are you living in chains? Who do you want to serve? Pharaoh? Or God? Who do you believe has the correct identity for you to live into? Who do you Yada, who do you know? Let me suggest to you four ways. These are, this is not an exclusive list, but these are pretty powerful traps. Four ways that I have found myself trapped and that I have seen many people trapped. Four ways that Christians often become enslaved. The first is the reality of sin. Paul writes often that sin enslaves us. And whether it be outbursts of anger 
or sexual sins or, or, or conceitedness or, or lying and theft, whether it be issues of pride or, or whatever it is, all of these things are attempts by our flesh to exert dominion over us, to say that mm, you've got to exert power. You've got to exert power in order to make an identity for yourself. Freedom from sin comes when you stand back and allow God to declare an identity over you. The New Testament time and time again says crazy things like, you don't have to live that way anymore. And it's true. But it's super hard. (laughs) And though it will be an imperfect journey in this life, a life that is increasingly characterized by yada knowing God is a life that is increasingly not characterized by the traps of sin. If you're a Christian and you find yourself trapped in sin, repetitive, besetting, addictive sin, there is a path out. The second trap that uh, is so prevalent uh, for so many is the trap of fear. Many people, it's only been highlighted exponentially by things like the global pandemic and the elections of the last couple of years and the great division in our country and in our world. It brings fear right to the top, even if it was hiding deep in your surface. Now, let me just make a quick statement. This is not a disclaimer. This is a statement of truth. To be fearful is to be human. It is not a sin to be afraid, right? So this is no sermon that says, oh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, be a man or a woman of God and don't be afraid anymore. That's garbage. That's nonsense. It's foolishness. God already says His power is perfect in our weakness. He intends for us in many levels to be afraid, uncertain, anxious. Fear becomes a trap when it paralyzes you. Right? Then you know you're enslaved to fear. You see it? It does not mean when God calls you to something, you can't be like, this is super scary. That does not make you a bad Christian. In fact, that probably makes you a good Christian because you're honest. But you're enslaved to fear when you don't go do the thing that God's called you to. You see it? Now, here are two great ways that fear plays itself out. This is not an exclusive list, so you're not off the hook if your kind of fear is different. Um, These are two traps of fear, right? The first one is deeply personal for me, so I'll just be vulnerable with you. Uh, This can be applicable to no one else but me this morning, right? The fear of failure. Right? This is true of me. I'll just tell you right now. Maybe it's not true of anyone else here. But man, can that paralyze me from doing things that God calls me to or even doing the basic things of Christian obedience. I read the story of Moses and man, can I relate. To fear is human, but if you are enslaved by it, at some level, that's a gospel issue not a fear issue. You see it? And then let me broadly say the fear of this world. And man, have I seen this over the last couple of years. And it's true in many of your lives. The Christians have even more so barricaded themselves against this world. Terrified of the boogeyman out there. 
Now, I'm not here to tell you the boogeyman doesn't exist. You know, proverbially, I'm speaking about the world, not a real boogeyman, right? You got that, right? Yeah. The world does exist. There is evil out there. There's brutality. There's pain. There's hurt. It's all out there. To be human is to be afraid of that. That's human. That's real. To be isolated is to be paralyzed by fear and enslaved by it. It's to not know the gospel. In fact, it's a little bit different idea of Moses, isn't it? Because Moses has this fear too. <laughs> to be afraid of the world and therefore barricade yourself completely away from it and, there, and then not embrace the mission that God has given all of us is to believe that the Exodus story is you against Pharaoh. That this is all about your yod versus Pharaoh's yod, right? This is all about you versus the world. And man, God is continually whispering in your ear, it's not by you, it's by my hand. I get it. Pharaoh is super powerful and a really bad dude. You can just read history books, let alone the scriptures, to know super bad. It doesn't change God's call. So are you experiencing freedom in the gospel? That can only come from saying, oh, God, you're going to have to do something. I'll put myself out there. Or are you experiencing enslavement by fear that says, this is too big, it's too much, there's no way. Viewing it through my power versus the world. Third reality of slavery, all too prevalent in the church in America today, is what I'll call the trap of religion. If you've been here for any length of time, I hope you've heard me talk about this before. What I mean by religion, right, let me define terms. What I mean by religion is the reality of feeling like you need to do all the things in order for God to be happy with you. You do all the things, the church attendance and the Bible reading, and I try to say this every time, please keep doing the things. They're good things and they're good for you. But you do them out of worship, right? You work from worship. You don't work to worship. Religion says you work and then you can have a relationship with God. And all too often, we are enslaved by that reality. Because we feel the burden and the toil of needing to perform in order to be accepted by God. God has never said that. That's a man-made identity. The last thing that often enslaves us. I don't have a great title for this, so I'm going to call it secular religion. Right? Attempts in our world to create identities for ourselves or things that are announcing identities over us. Things like our job, our family, our kids, our stuff, our retirement plan, the American dream. So many Christians, hear me, hear my heart for you and for myself, are enslaved by these things. Parents are slaves to their children, trying to give them the perfect world or the perfect thing, enslaved by sports schedules and things scheduled. If your whole world, 
revolves around your kids, that's enslavement. There's no other way around it, right? We're called to worship God, not other things. Now, I'll remind you, that does not mean your kids aren't important, aren't significant, aren't central to the work God has given you, but your work comes out of worship. Do you see it? It's so easy to get enslaved. Enslaved to your work. Enslaved to your stuff. Why? What is the allure? How do we find ourselves trapped in all of these different ways? It is always an identity issue. Pursuing an identity that gives us security, significance, and acceptance. And God says, if you really want to be free, if you really want to be free, not just externally look free, if you really internally want to be free, you can. And in these chapters gives us a pretty simple path out of enslavement. The first step to finding freedom is admitting that you need it, right? Isn't it fascinating that the Israelites are in Egypt for 400 years? What moves God to action? They finally cry out. Hear that? They finally come to realize their current situation. And they cry out for help, and God comes. You can't get freedom if you're not asking for it. You're not seeking it. You're not looking for it. And then after that, freedom is frowned by who you yada by who you know, by who you're with, by what you're trusting, by what you're building your life around. Now, here's an important statement for you. You say, Adam, it sounds so easy. I know it's not easy. I know it's incredibly hard. Because all of those things that enslave us are just like Pharaoh. They are not going to say, yes, you can go. Yeah, go ahead, have a festival. They're not going to say yes. They're going to say no. Why? Because they don't know God. Because they're trying to force an identity on you. You're useful to them. And because their concern is not for you. But God is quite the opposite. He hears your cries. And he stands ready to set you free. If you don't believe me, look at the story of the Exodus. And if that feels too old and disconnected to you, then look no farther than Jesus himself. If you want to know what God is like, what God is truly like, look at Jesus. A God who willingly stripped himself of the glories of his position. Who took on the whippings that were rightfully ours. Who felt the full burden of the work of this world. So that we could experience the freedom that he already had. You understand that, right? The gospel 
the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Do not achieve a new thing for Jesus. They achieve a new thing for us. That your restoration is part of the mission of God. Can I pray with you?